0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for attending what I anticipate will be a very fruitful and lively discussion on the opportunity for US foreign policy and business to improve global nutrition. My name is Amy Bodro, And I am a research fellow here at CSIS's Global Food Security Project, where I focus on global nutrition. I'm especially interested in today's conversation and discussion because my current research focuses on fruits and vegetables and diets and a component of it is what kind of multi-sectoral and disciplinary research we need to accelerate progress in that area. And therefore, I am extremely honored to introduce our esteemed speaker, Dr. Lauren Sadat. I cannot even begin to imagine how long his CV must be. His contributions to nutrition include an extensive portfolio, as I'm sure you know, from being a founding co-chair of the Global Nutrition Report to an extensive portfolio of publications that will contribute to nutrition science indefinitely, his international service and governance in numerous committees and boards, countless presentations, which by the way, I just asked him how many he gave last week and he said, I don't want to answer that question. (laughs) Too many to count. Um, And last but not least, being a 2018 World Food Prize laureate. Ironically, um, almost two or you know, talking about the World Food Prize, Dr. Haddad, along with Dr. David Nabarro, received this prestigious honor for their individual and complementary world leadership in elevating maternal and child undernutrition to a priority issue within food security and international development. If you are unfamiliar with the World Food Prize, it is often referred to as the Nobel Prize for Food and Agriculture. Dr. Haddad's commitment to service began at an early age when he actually volunteered with his mother at a Save a Children charity shop. He graduated with his PhD from Stanford University. And after that, he held numerous positions with leading institutions, such as the London School of Economics, the Institute of Development Studies, and here in DC, the International Food Policy Research Institute. Then in 2016, Dr. Haddad became the executive director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, also known as GAIN. In this position, he has become a leading voice and advocate for public-private engagement in nutrition. Ironically, almost two years to the date of today, the Global Food Security Project hosted another nutrition-focused fo- World Food Prize laureate, Dr. Howdy Buus. Dr. Buus and Lawrence have an extensive history, a phenomenal history, in fact. In 1985, they worked together on a Philippine study where they shifted the research focus from calories and energy to dietary quality. This innovative thinking was controversial at the time, and the world is so fortunate that they persevered because this research laid the foundation to the concept we know today that all calories are not equal. Given their history, I asked Dr. Buis if he would be so kind to provide a quote for his introduction And of course, he responded with ours, and was so happy to do so. I hope I give this quote justice. Little did Lawrence and I know when we were interviewing farming families in the Philippines almost 35 years ago that we would go on to lead organizations focused on eliminating hidden hunger around the world. Luckily, we both still look exactly the same. (laughs) <laughs> Gain and Harvest Plus now have a formal partnership to work even more closely together on the kind of private sector engagement that Lawrence will describe today. Today's event will include a keynote lecture followed by an armchair discussion with the Global Food Security Project's director, Kimberly Flowers, and will conclude with audience questions. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lawrence Sadan.
1: Yeah, can you hear me? Thank you, Amy, so much for such a lovely introduction. Um, that was really nice. My mother didn't, I didn't volunteer with my mother. She made me volunteer to the Save the <laughs> Charity Shop. I'm going to take a photograph of you guys. Is that OK? Before I start. So smile. <laughs> Look like you're having fun. Thank you. Um, it's a really great honor to be here. Thank you to Kimberly and Amy for inviting me. Um, so I, wanna, I was really, really like this topic I was given. I haven't given a, topic, a talk like this before. And it made me think um, quite hard about what is US foreign policy and why might, if I was talking to a CEO of an American company, why, how would I sell her or him nutrition? Um, There are some notable emissions. I haven't talked much about climate change. That's because I don't know if the US has a policy on climate change or not. Um, But I'm happy to talk about that in the Q&A. So let me get started. So what I'm gonna talk about is how eliminating malnutrition enhances productivity abroad and how it enhances productivity at home in the US. And and productivity enhancements overseas have big implications for trade, migration, and conflict. And trade, migration, and conflict, we know are big components of US foreign policy. But what I'm going to say, I think, is that I think um, nutrition enhances productivity at home. And I think that's equally, if not more important, for U.S. foreign policy and U.S. business interests, I'm going to talk about the, US, the international competitiveness of the U.S. and business competitiveness. Now I've only got 18 minutes, so I'm going to skip over this very quickly. But at least it'll give you a flavour of what um, what I think the issues are. So improved nutrition enhances productivity overseas. So you know, it's, if, if I is there a bottle of water? Yes. So this is this bottle of water weighs about a pound. This is how much a baby's brain weighs at birth, right? So a baby's brain at birth weighs this. Um, At one year of age, the baby's brain weighs this. These are a bit heavier than a pound, but you know what I mean. Um, This is how much a baby's brain weighs at two years of age. And our brains weigh three bottles. So it goes from a bottle at birth to two bottles at one year of age to three bottles when you get to our age. So that shows you, that's, that's, a, that's a heuristic illustration of this, this graph. And this graph has a lot of science behind it. The baby's brain is growing at an incredibly fast rate in the first year or two. And anything that damages that development is not irreversible, but is, is partially irreversible. Right? So, it really matters what's happening in very early stages. And this is why it really matters. So, this graph is it's a little bit complicated because um, you've, got, you've got months and years. But that, that red line, that vertical red line, is two years of age. And what's happening is you can see the vertical axis is basically the intensity of what those different um, attributes are, are developing. So, the sensory pathways are developing very rapidly at minus three months prior to pregnancy in the last trimester. Uh, Language is is the peak of intensity of language development is at uh, seven or eight months. And the peak of cognitive, higher cognitive functions is at two years. So anything that's damaging that or disrupting that is really bad for not just the child's survival rates, but the child's ability to thrive. And, and the, the evidence is very clear. This is a summary. I'm an economist, and this is the summary of all the economic literature. It's, there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, but I just want to focus on one box one, six, and eight. So box one, estimates by top kids too thin for their age, women who are anemic. If we can get rid of that, we'll boost GMP by 11% in Africa and Asia. That's a bigger boost or a bigger depression that we're suffering as a result of malnutrition from the global Financial crisis. It's like a global financial crisis every year, not just two thousand seven, two thousand and eight. Uh, number six boosts wage rates by five to fifty percent. It's a big, it's a big uh, range, um, but even five percent is a big deal if you're hardly earning anything. Uh, and and then makes women ten percent more likely to own their own businesses when they're adults. These studies, they they they. They see kids when they're malnourished at three, and then they track them for the next 30 to 40 years of their life and say, what's happened to the kids who were malnourished and the kids who were not malnourished? And What happens to them 30, 40 years down the road? And it tries to control for all the confounding variables. So you know, these are, these are big effects, uh, and they, they really matter. So what? So why, why does that matter? Well. Um, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, they're already amongst the top 30 importers from the US. As these economies grow, as these families grow, they will import more products from the United States if the United States products are competitive. For sure, they will also export more products to the US. Uh, But you want growing economies to provide markets for US exports. Um, There's also... Evidence, reasonably good evidence. I'll show it to you in a minute. That food price volatility, which is highly damaging for kids uh, and women and any vulnerable groups, malnutrition. Food prices going up and down by 20, 30, 40, 50 percent, 100 percent sometimes. In In a, you know, for us in living here or in the UK, there's very little seasonality of food prices. It's pretty much the same all year round. But if you're living in an area with poor market development, poor roads, poor infrastructure. Food prices are doing this all the time. And as adults, we can ride that out. But young children, those brains that are developing very quickly, high food prices mean less food consumption. So there's good evidence that reducing food price volatility actually reduces the incidence of conflict. And the other, I guess the other big thing around policy, certainly in the UK and I think in the US too, is migration. And here the evidence is very mixed. On migration. There's a, a strand of evidence that says uh, investing in countries overseas through aid programs uh, actually leads to more migration out of those countries into other countries because people can actually afford to migrate if you like. But there's another strand of literature that says the more aid you, you put in and if that aid translates into improved domestic services the less tendency there is to migrate, because people often migrate for better services as well as better o- economic opportunity. So the migration evidence is very, very mixed and not very clear, but the trading and the stability is, is quite clear. And you know, who's, who are going to be the economic giants in 2050? So this, this graphic just literally shows you the economic growth rates that are being projected uh, from 2016 through to 2050. And so red means high growth rates. And all the high growth rates are, as you can see, in um, Asia, South Africa, some in Nigeria, Egypt, uh, and Latin America. That's where all the high growths are. So of course, they're starting from down here. And many of the European and American countries are here. But they're, they're catching up rapidly. So nutrition is a very important part of that. Um, does malnutrition, can it prevent conflict? Here is the best study I've seen of this, and it's a really good study. It looks at uh, 24 African states. It looks at food price data at market level in 113 markets over a a long period, 156 months, Uh, and it looks at the. It it correlates and tries to get at causation, and I think it does it quite credibly. The causation, because correlation is not causation, so you have to work hard to get to causation, and I think it does a pretty good job. And they find that 100% increase in food prices is associated with a 13% uh, increase in the expected number of conflict events. Now, 100% price and increase sounds like a lot, but food prices can vary, vary by that much in, in a, in a, from season to season. But a 13% increase in the number of conflicts is a big deal. So. Um, I I find this a very compelling study, and we need more studies like this, but I find it very compelling. So that's the enhanced productivity at home. It provides growing markets for US exports. It doesn't do much for migration, we think, um, and I think it can prevent conflict, and prevention of conflict is good for everyone, uh, the US and everyone else. What about enhancing productivity at home? So I think there are two dimensions here, international competitiveness and business competitiveness. So I want to show you this diagram. My colleagues at GAIN are sick of seeing these diagrams because I, I share them wherever I go. And I always change the country because the IHME, which is this uh, Health Metrics Institute in Seattle that's funded by the Gates Foundation based at the University of Washington, they do this global burden of disease study. And it's an ongoing thing. And they, they basically combine mortality data with morbidity data into a burden of disease data. They do this for every country. They've uh, done it for the USA. They've even done it for Washington, D.C. Um, and they say, what, what's driving that? So they add up all the morbidity and mortality, and they say, what's driving that? What are the risk factors behind that? And this is the 2017 ranking on the right-hand side. And you can see tobacco is number two. Um, but the ones I've circled in red are all the ones that are related to diet. So high body, high body mass index is number one overweight, obesity, number one. Dietary risks, number two. High fasting, plasma glucose, consumption of added sugar, number three, Uh, number four. High blood pressure linked to excess intake of salt, number five, number six, number five. And high LDL, LDL is uh, cholesterol, so high cholesterol. So this is, you know, what you eat, the, the nourishment you get is a big deal in Ethiopia and India. It's a big deal in the US as well. And early childhood nutrition, those graphs I showed you with the brain functions and the sensory functions, those aren't for developing country kids, those for all kids. Wherever, you, wherever you're a kid, that affects you. And this is some, the evidence I showed you with that blue matrix with the three, three cells that I highlighted, that was all from the developing world. This is evidence from the US. Uh, this is from James, uh, Jim Heckman, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist. Um, and it's just, this is a heuristic curve, but it's sort of the, a representation of all the, all the studies that show the rate of return to investment in human capital, which is the vertical axis, is much is bigger the earlier you can intervene. It just it's makes sense, right? The earlier you, you intervene, the bigger the economic rates of return. So this is why preschool programs are so important, programs pre-preschool are so important, and programs during pregnancy, like SNAP, are so, not SNAP, but WIC, so so important. Um, this so why is that important? Well, you know, if you if you look at the World Economic Forum competitive uh, uh, rankings, the U.S. is comfortably number one globally competitive country in the world. These are all the different dimensions uh, that the overall score of of number one is. There's an enabling environment, there's markets, there's innovation, and the U.S. scores pretty well. On all of those, it's sort of first. There's lots of firsts, seconds, and thirds. There's a 13th, a 9th, and a 27th. But the one I've circled is health. Health is US is 47th in terms of the competitiveness uh, in, along this dimension. Uh, China is higher than that. China is 43 or something in the health ranking. It's, China's way behind on everything else except markets, but it's ahead on. On health uh, and this matters this matters and um, one one sort of example of why this matters and, and, and an example of why businesses should be really investing in preventing the um, the malnutrition of their workforces is there's a lot of evidence from the literature about workforce nutrition so a lot of employers have programs that promote the well-being of their employees and a lot of them say well you know is it really worth it um, a really good uh, summary of the literature in this 2010, it's a bit old now, this 2010 uh, study, uh, shows that for every dollar invested, you're know, you you're saving, the company is saving, um, in terms of health insurance coverage, 3.27. Uh, and for every dollar invested in, in, any, in any program, you're, you're saving 2.73 in terms of absenteeism. No one has studied presenteeism. Presenteeism is when you go to work but you're not really working. Uh, you're just kind of doing, it, doing your Twitter feeds and that kind of thing, um, uh, but so these are these are not massive rates of return, but they're they're respectable, and they're they're, they're defensible. Um, so I think it's very important. I think why businesses, in terms of business competitiveness, this slide hasn't come out very well, um, but it's a slide from uh, uh, a a Kerry, uh, Kerrycom. Um, Study, And it's it's a summary of of which which countries have instituted sugar taxes, uh, or or different types of sugars. There's a a sugar tax, there's a broader nutrition tax, there are other taxes related to nutrition. What's really interesting is that 35 countries have now introduced these sugar taxes. Uh, And 20 of them, 20 of those 35 have been in the last four years. So the message of this slide is if you're if you're involved in business, and if you're involved in food production, this is not going away. This this regular regulatory swell is going to become a tidal wave. And if you're a business, not only do you need to get ahead of the game because of the well-being of your own employees, you need to get ahead of the game because if you don't, this is going to hurt your business model. Um, you need to become. You need to embrace that as a business and say we are going to be the at the at the forefront. We're going to be the pioneer business that's going to be um, marketing healthy food. We're not going to be the laggards. We're going to be the pioneers. We we have to move anyway. We might as well be the first ones to do it and get the, the kudos for doing so. And I think we're another another piece of evidence that suggests that sort of backs up my assertion that this is not going away. This movement towards healthier food in the US is not going away. And it's not going away anywhere else either. This is a, a study by L.E.K Consulting. And it, it just breaks down. Um, it, looks at, it looks at different age, t- different generations. It looks at millennials, Gen Xs, and boomers. Don't ask me what these, what these terms really mean. But we know that millennials are younger than Gen Xs. And they're definitely younger than boomers. Um, And it it asked them, how committed are you to buying products that have those words attached to them? How committed are you to buying products that have the word natural, whatever that means? Uh, Ethical, enhanced, less of, uh, an alternative dietary lifestyle, which essentially means, I think, vegan lifestyle. Um, So what you can see here is a sort of a a gradation. The younger generations seem to be more committed (coughs) to buying healthier foods, whatever, whatever If I'm assuming those, those labels actually do correspond to healthier. But even if they don't, there's an idea that younger, genera- younger generation, younger consumers want to buy healthier food. So again, businesses need to pay attention to nutrition because it's good for their business model. So this is my br- brief summary, and I'm happy to talk about climate change too. but. Is this uh, an opportunity for foreign policy and business? I, I, really, I really think it is. I think it enhances productivity overseas. That's great for trade. It promotes stability, which is great for economic growth and trade, um, and also the prevention of tragedy and conflict. Uh, it's mixed on migration. There's no real story on migration, I think, at least no general story. And it, I think even more importantly, it enhances productivity at home. If you don't invest in the nutrition of your workforce, nutrition of your citizens, of your population, uh, the country is going to be less competitive, and, and business is going to be less competitive. So ending malnutrition is not just the right thing to do. It is absolutely the smart thing to do. Well, thank you very much. Here? Do I get brownie points for remembering the slide? Good. I had
2: to make sure he clicked it back to our slide. At the end. Well done, thank you. and good speech as well. Thank you. I'm giving you a hand. Oh, there you go. All thank right. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Lawrence. We're really glad. Um, I was so impressed watching you last year at the World Food Prize and really, wa- really watching just the rapport between you and, um, and the other guy. The other guy, David well, Navarro. David Navarro. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start with sort of a, a hardball question. I don't want to do soft question right away, and I. I think when we look at this topic, right, an opportunity for particularly the business side, Mm -hmm. um, just to address the elephant in the room directly, there's certainly this inherent tension between the nutrition community and the private sector, particularly the food and beverage industry um, and the negative impact that they've had on the globe, but particularly around rising obesity rates, right? So I have two questions to start on that. The first is how do you hold private sector accountable for the negative impacts they've had while at the same time having a positive relationship with them and then two related to that in your role how do you how do you change that narrative that's a hard narrative to change
1: yeah thank you thanks completely i mean it's a it's a great question It's it's at the heart of what gain does i mean we are Our sole purpose as an organization is to improve the consumption of nutritious and safe food because poor diets are the center of all forms of malnutrition. And if you're going to do that, you have to work within the food system because the food system, everything from production to retailing, that frames the choices consumers have. It frames whether food is available, whether it's affordable, and actually whether it's desirable. And if you work within the food system, you have to work with businesses. Businesses are everywhere in the food system. Farmers are businesses. Um, refrigeration units are businesses. Wholesalers are businesses. Retailers are businesses. Processors. So you have to work with them. It, mm-hmm. For me, it's, it, a lot of people in the nutrition community will say, we don't want to work with them. We, a, a boycott is the best thing to do. And I think, yes, they're part of the problem, but they have to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? And uh, so again, we're not, champions of, we're not champions of business, but we're champions of engaging with businesses. Because unless you engage, there's no dialogue. There's no dialogue to say, hey, you know what you're doing over here is not good for, he- for health. And actually, it's, we, we don't think it's good for your business in the medium to long <coughs> run. Um, and if you don't engage, you can't begin to identify the opportunities where you actually can do things that are good for nutrition and things that are good for business. So how do you change that dynamic? I mean, I think you do it in, it's not gonna change overnight, but I think you have to be brave uh, and you have to be ready to uh, get criticism. I get criticism all the time from people who say, how on earth could you, I was, I was giving a, I did a joint blog with um, the World Business Council on Sustainable Development. Um, they're, they're, they've got a group of companies that are called Fresh and they're, they're committed to sustainable, nutritious food production. Now, they don't always practice what they preach but they're at least they're at least committed publicly to doing it and that means we can hold them a bit more accountable um and i got i got lots of criticism saying how can you do a joint blog with someone from this group and the blog was very you know it was it was basically saying we need to work with businesses they're, they're part of the problem they're part of the solution there are lots of opportunities to do good things for intuition good things for business i got a lot of criticism for that i was a bit bit taken aback because they were saying you're you're essentially giving lending some credibility to these, these organizations, but these organizations are the food system. Mm-hmm. If you want to change the, the food system, you have to change these organizations. Yeah. So I, th- I think there's lots of different ways of doing it, but talking is, a, is, a, is the best first step.
2: Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things that you said in your speech for talking about the sugar tax was that that regulatory swell is, is going to be a tidal wave. In your career, what other things have you seen that are tidal waves or big changes business related or not? What are the, what are the big tidal waves of over the past two decades? Cause it's a lot different than when you were working with Howdy in the eighties, you know, it's a different, if it's a different day today.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so many things, I mean, I don't know where to start, but, um, <laughs> the two that jump to mind are urbanization and climate change, of course. Mm, mm-hmm. So urbanization is a massive challenge, but a massive opportunity as well. Um, in urban, when we work in urban contexts, we think they're not the poorest of the poor, but actually some of the very poorest are in urban contexts. Uh, some of the most destitute, they don't have, they don't have social networks, they don't have, their, their shacks could be bulldozed overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, they're subject to all kinds of environmental hazards. Uh, they're subject to mafia strongmen threatening their families. Um, so, but there are also lots of opportunities. There are, there is, there's an energy there. There are, there are mayors that are dynamic. Um, there are new alliances that can be formed. There's social media now, um, so there's that. I think we're, a lot of us are still stuck in the rural development world, and we need to begin to adapt to the, uh, to the urban development world. I think um, climate, of course, was being talked about 20, 30 years ago, but now it's it's everywhere, and I think it's no longer Legitimate to sort of say, well, I'm going to just deal with nutrition and food, and I'm going to I'll leave the climate stuff for somebody else to deal with. That's not a no pun intended. That's not a sustainable position anymore. Um, and the links between climate and nutrition are very profound. Um, climate changes make those food prices do this. They wreck livelihoods, so they have negative consequences in terms of adaptation. But they're also um, they're also really important for mitigation as well um, there's different foods have different environmental footprints different greenhouse gas footprints um, it's not always simple as meat and not meat it's very complicated actually there are lots of different meats uh, there are lots of different fruits and vegetables some fruits and vegetables have very low greenhouse gas emissions but very high water use and electricity use and energy use so it's a very complicated area this whole environmental health nexus and of course the big change really that we didn't didn't see coming. None of us have been this, you know, it was mo- we were mostly focusing on undernutrition and now we're focusing That's on malnutrition in all its forms. Okay. I would say another big thing that I, I, I see on paper, but I don't see in people's hearts and minds, you know, we've moved from a millennium development goal world where we in the North have all the solutions and people in the South have all the problems to a sustainable development goal world where actually everybody has problems and everybody has solutions. We haven't really, at least in the development and aid world, we haven't really internalized that yet. There's still a lot of, we know best, this is the solution that you should adopt. So mm. lots, of, lots of things.
2: Yeah. Is there any more that you wanna unpack on climate change? I mean, as you were talking about nutrition, one thing I, when I do my presentations on, on a variety of things on food security, I often talk about how even the warming temperatures change the nutritional quality of some staple crops. Are there yeah. other things about climate change? Um, you know, whether it's a call to action or what could we be doing? What should we be looking at in terms of research or policy or just on an individual basis um, for something that is, is very much in our face? And, and yet we don't seem to be taking the dramatic actions we need to be.
1: Yeah, I think it's, in Europe it's slightly different, I think, mm. than here. In Europe it's becoming a, more of a, it's it's sort of penetrating the psyche and the consciousness of people who don't think about these things very often. Um, the school kid movement in, in Europe has been very powerful, actually. The Friday afternoon mm. the kids go off, they, they go on marches. My kids have done it. Uh, it's raised their awareness, it's raised the awareness of their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's been very powerful. I'd, don't, I mean, I think in the US it's very difficult. But uh, um, the, the study you're alluding to is the study that says lots of higher levels of green uh, CO2 in the atmosphere depresses the nutrient content of crops. So we need to be finding staple crops that have higher levels of zinc and iron and those kinds of things. And we are working with Harvest Plus on uh, a partnership to commercialize biofortified crops. Um, I also think climate change is not all bad news. There, are, there will be generation. There will be opportunities for different types of farmers in different types of contexts, and we need to support entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs, in some ways, thrive on disruption. Uh, they see the new opportunities to be able to make money in a sustainable way. The, the smaller ones have the least ability to probably to adapt to that. Maybe the bigger ones actually, ironically, also have the least ability to adapt to it. Maybe it's that middle group that can do it. But we need to support the smaller ones to seize the opportunities.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So you brought up conflict, which I was glad, because I looked back at my notes from your World Who Praise talks last year. And one of the things I had bolded and highlighted was your links between conflict and nutrition. It's something we research and talk about a lot here in terms of especially the volatile prices and how that relates to stability. Um, But as you said, and as we often say, there still needs to be some better connections to kind of show that or tell that story. So my question to you, I mean, you can, you know, any other details you wanna add on that connection, feel free. But my question to you is if you had all the money in the world to do a research project, right? You had a fabulous team, right? Just, I pretend, do just, just pretend I'm Melinda Gates here, right? And I have money to give you, and you have to come up with some sort of research project. You are a researcher, you're a scientist. What, what could we do to better show those linkages? What's, what, are we, what are we missing in the research world so that we can better explain these connections?
1: Wow. <laughs> it's getting, now it's getting really difficult.
2: I told you it wouldn't be easy. Mm.
1: Um, well, I think... That kind of study I showed, I think mm-hmm. you, need, you need the big macro stuff. Yeah, You need that. Um, so we need to do that. But it's, you know, it's a long-term study because you're, you're trying to find the data and you're trying to go back. It's very similar to what the climate scientists have been trying to do with, with temperature data, and rainfall data, and link mm-hmm. that to a whole range of other things. So I think I would try to replicate that study uh, in other markets. That's the first thing I'd do.
2: BROADER THAN AFRICA, YOU MEAN? BROADER THAN AFRICA, mm-hmm.
1: AND I, I you know, TRY AND UPDATE IT AND TRY AND DO IT IN OTHER PLACES. Mm-hmm. PACE, YOU KNOW, IF I WAS IN THE U.S., I'D TRY AND DO IT IN PLACES THAT WERE A STRATEGIC INTEREST TO in THE U.S., IF THAT'S WHAT, IF THAT'S THE AUDIENCE WE'RE TRYING TO INFLUENCE. THEN I WOULD KIND OF DO SOMETHING AT THE um, MIDDLE LEVEL. Um, I WOULD LOOK AT WHERE, um, YOU KNOW, THE 2007, 2008 FOOD PRICE SPIKES mm-hmm. LED TO LOTS OF CIVIL UNREST AND yeah. CIVIL CONFLICT. Um, I would look at those. I'd re- revisit those. I haven't seen a really serious analysis of those. Actually, hmm. um, those those spikes. Then I would look um, very much at the individual level, as well. Yeah. I think there are examples of kids that were, kids that are malnourished that mm, ten, fifteen years later. And there are more and more of these long term survey, long term cohort studies that are tracking kids over twenty years. I don't. I haven't seen any of those. Look at um, the psychological consequences of malnutrition and the proclivity to violence, mm. the domestic violence, because conflict can be in the household as well as internationally and within nations. So I would look at those. I would look at, it at those sort of three levels.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I would also focus a lot on resilience, which is you know how can we prevent
2: sure.
1: fragility? Resilience is the flip side of fragility, and for that, I think there's a whole series of things around diversity. You know, diversity is the is the uh, I guess the vaccine against fragility, diversity of production, diversity of consumption, diversity of location. Uh, and I would look a bit more about, uh, there's some evidence about diversity of production, diversity of consumption, nutrition status. I would mm-hmm. look more at the diversity issue within countries and between countries. Really you know, we're reliant on, very heavily on three staple crops, the world's food supply. We're reliant on five or six bread baskets globally. Mm-hmm. Um, we need more diversity. Yeah. That there, there may be a slight drop-off in efficiency, but I think it's well worth it for the, the resilience.
2: Let's talk about the US and our leaders. Um, I'm sure when you do these DC visits, my guess is you meet with some senior policymakers. Um, what are we doing right and what could we do better? In terms of, I'm thinking more of the foreign policy here, of course, um, what have you seen in terms of U.S. development and U.S. foreign assistance programs in terms specifically of nutrition that has evolved in a, in a positive way? And where else do we still need to grow?
1: Um, well, I think, I think the U.S. Is, is, has really embedded nutrition. Um, Agreed. Quite, quite seriously, I think, in its work. And, and at least in the parts of USAID that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in global health, of course, but it's very very seriously embedded in the bureau for food security and other mm-hmm. and other places as well, and I think there's I see a convergence around the idea that better diets are really, you know, the thing we the thing that's to be focused on um, in terms of work overseas. In terms of, is your question more about how do we build? support for that domestically, for that work overseas?
2: Um, not exactly. I'm thinking more if, if you could sit down um, with, uh, not necessarily Beth Dunford, but maybe Beth Dunford at USAID, who I'm sure you know, or even all the way up into the NSC, you know, if, if you had some influence there to say, whether it's legislation or whether it's policy or where to put their money, what would you tell them to do differently?
1: Well, I, th- I like the fact that there are, there are 20 or so Feed the Future countries. I think twenty. It's twelve th- now. Is it twelve now? It
2: changed. It used to be nineteen. It was launched in two thousand and ten. Um, it changed uh, about two years ago. To now, there's twelve. 12. So two new ones: uh, Nigeria and Niger. And then a few dropped off.
1: So nothing else in the other eight countries now, or just?
2: Uh, there's still there's still funding and yeah. programming that's happening, but it's not the same level of uh, focus or funding.
1: Okay, but my point was, you know, lots of aid agencies have fifty countries that they're working. Absolutely. I think I think the smaller number is is good. hmm um, I think um, U.S. There aren't many, and this is a bit. This is a bit of parochial. My, my comment now. It's a bit sort of gain specific, but there aren't many aid agencies and development agencies that are really embracing the private sector possibilities. They are, are aware of the possibilities and aware of the risks. Mm. Um, the Dutch aid program is one of them, um, and I think the U.S. aid program is pretty much the other one. Hmm. Um, uh, so I, I really like that, that business uh, focus. But it's not an easy focus because sometimes if you're going to find some business-related solutions, and we, we, that's what, that, is, that is sustainable development, folks. It's when businesses mm-hmm. start generating uh, good development outcomes, and, and governments don't have to. Um, where is I going? I think, I think the, the trade-off is that the more you do that, the, the further away you get from the dollar a day folks. Yeah. So that's, that's a difficult, mm-hmm. that's the trade-off we're, we're trying to work with at GAIN. How do we get the business models um, delivering for people really on less than $2 a day? I Is, think that's really difficult.
2: Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, no, 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 interrupt you. In terms of models, I mean, this could be talking about GAIN, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be talking about USAID again. but is there a particular model that you would say works best? I think sometimes that's a hard question, because like, what is a model, oh, what does that mean? Yeah. But is there a, maybe a, a partnership that you are most proud of or that you that really sort of embodies that success that you've seen? Or what advice do you give to people when they ask you, how do you, how do you even begin to mm-hmm. create a positive model?
1: I think, you, first of all, you have to break the business community down into sort of at least six groups. When, you know, I, love, I love two by twos or two by three tables. I'm a geek, what can I say? But <laughs> Think of food companies and non-food companies, and then think of the big multilateral, big multinationals, then the the sort of large national companies, and then the smaller medium enterprises. So you've got two columns and three rows, and in each of those six cells, there are there are opportunities and risks, and we work in a lot of those cells at Gain. I think the the one I'm most proud of really is a lot of the people and a lot of my colleagues in this room not just because they're in the room. They work on it, and that's not why I'm calling it out. It's the work we do with SMEs, small and medium enterprises, because when it comes down to it, those are the, uh, those are the companies that the people who are the most vulnerable to malnutrition, at least undernutrition, that's where they get their food, the small and medium enterprises, the small fruit and vegetable company, the small chicken company, the small bean company. That's where they get their food, their retailers, their producers, their processors. And no one is really looking out for them. No one is really looking at the potential they have to transform their local food system. because the big companies are, the, the income levels haven't risen to the point where the big companies are interested. Hmm. So we work a lot with the SMEs, uh, and we support them. The challenge with working with SMEs then is how do you, you can transform the SMEs, but how do you transform the sectors? that they work in and the markets they work in. Yeah. And we have various ways of doing that from uh, financing models to community, communities mm-hmm. of practice. Yeah. And, and the enabling
2: environment. I mean, the, re- the regulatory the environment, environment has to be And there. I wanted to
1: just talk about the enabling environment because you're, you, I didn't answer one of your questions, which was how do we hold companies accountable? Mm. So we're big fans, at Gain of the Access to Nutrition Index, um, which is partly because it was uh, established at Gain, and then it spun off to be its own independent organisation, mm-hmm. and they track the big companies. Uh, what are the big What are the big food companies producing? Uh, is it healthy? For example, a third of the big food companies' food lines, um, only a third make it to a sort of minimum health, m- minimum nutrition profile. Basically, mm-hmm. so that's that's pretty damning, actually. Um, but we're we're also working with the. Uh, Access to Nutrition Foundation to see can we do some work uh, around the accountability of, of SMEs as well, mm. not just the big companies, but the SMEs. But I wanted to talk about the accountability of governments because governments are hugely accountable. Uh, everyone, off, uh, everyone sort of loads, um, and sort of dumps on the big companies and, and the small companies, and very often they deserve it. Um, but the governments have a massive responsibility to mm-hmm. set the rules of the game. To set the enabling environment to make it easy for companies to do the right thing. So often there are hidden tariffs that mm-hmm. make it difficult for companies to do things. We were, some of our Nigeria, where well, I'm looking at Bonnie, some of our Nigeria work with some of our um, companies uh, will say, you, You've got a fantastic business model here. What's stopping you getting finance to scale it out? Mm. They'll say, I can't get finance because my equipment, my my uh, mobile cold storage unit that helps my fruit and vegetables get from this remote farmer to a market 50 or 100 kilometers away—it's used. It's made from a repurposed shipping container, and repurposed,
2: mm-hmm.
1: repurposed machinery and repurposed equipment does not is not defined as um, eligible uh, collateral
3: mm-hmm. in
1: Nigerian financial institutions. That's that's kind of an inadvertent disabling rule right. that's stopping these companies, or I have to pay an incredible tariff on insulation material. Mm. So there are all kinds of uh, hidden and sometimes deliberate disabling things that governments do. Uh, and even when they have fantastic policies on the books to protect consumers and, and nudge businesses from doing this to doing that, they don't enforce yeah. or they can't enforce. So I think governments um, have a lot to answer for as well, and we're developing some metrics uh, around um, how do you measure, sort of akin to the ease of doing business mm-hmm. metric. What, how easy is it for businesses to do good things for nutrition, yeah. and how easy is it for them to do bad things?
2: I wonder if they could fold that into the Enabling um, Agriculture for Business report, you know, the EAB, that could yeah. be interesting. Yeah,
1: in uh, fact, we've, we've been inspired by that as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of people don't even know it exists, yeah. but I think I'm a big fan of indexes. That's my nerdy side. Um, yeah. But I think they can be incredibly valuable tools. I,
1: I am too, but the indexes must be must be used, yes, it there must be exactly. the starting point for a conversation,
2: mm-hmm. not the end point. Um, I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll turn to the audience, so get ready. Um, my last question is, I don't know if it's channeling or honoring um, David Nabarro, but because you're bringing up governance, which I agree, governance and enabling environments are two things I talk about a lot too. Um, so let's talk about the Sun movement, the scaling up nutrition. Um, f- you can explain what that is for those in the audience that may not know, but um, has it been helpful, hurtful? It's been a while you know, since it, since it was launched. Uh, where is it just cut out. Well, now it's back. Um, where is it today and how does it contribute or hinder what you're talking about in terms of governance? Sure.
1: Well, I'm, a, I'm a, a member of the executive board of Sun. so oh, I'm, I'm very okay. happy to talk about it, which is like, <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy to talk about Sun. Um, so Sun is the scaling up nutrition movement. It was launched in 2010. Uh, it's a totally voluntary movement. Com- uh, com- not companies, countries can sign up to the s- Sun movement. In signing up, they have to promised to prioritize nutrition, they're in the they're in spotlight. If they don't do good things for nutrition, we'll all know about it. Uh, it now has 60 member member states uh, that are members. Uh, it, is it making a difference? Well, we just had a medium-term review, uh, an external medium-term review, head, led by Richard Manning, who was you know the Director General of DFID and the, Sec- uh, the Secretary General of OECD DAC. Um, very respected evaluator and development um, player. And uh, they found lots of really good things about, about Sun, um, lots of really inspiring things, lots of change that's happening. But they also said, you're not doing a good enough job, Sun, of documenting well. when you do have an impact and when you don't. So there are lots of examples of where Sun is making things happen faster, better, and bigger. But there are also examples of where things are not happening. Mm -hmm. And one of the big recommendations was you need to to track this better. You you are having an impact. Where is it going? Uh, It's just finished its second, it's finishing its second phase and we, I don't know, but I I would guess there will be a third phase. Uh, And I would guess that it would try to, it was born in a time where we didn't think much about malnutrition in all its forms, Mm -hmm. was born in a time where we didn't think much about Food systems yeah. it was born in a time when we didn't think much about linking the sustainability and the health worlds together. My guess is that it will, its next phase, it will have to take these these kinds of things on board, without becoming overloaded. You right. know, it has to retain the focus on delivering impact at the national and subnational level on nutrition, but it has to be mindful and sensitive, uh, and perhaps even transformative about these other dimensions.
2: Yeah. Let's turn to the audience, we'll take a a cluster, so we'll take a couple at a time. Let's go right in the middle here first. Yeah, go ahead and stand up, we'll bring you a microphone. Please state your name and and your organization if you have one, thanks. Uh,
3: Good morning, Silvana Faillace from Church World Service. Um, We're talking about global nutrition and business and we've talked about food production, but there's two sectors that come to mind and I wanted to get your take on engaging those, which is pharmaceutical companies Mm -hmm. and the health sector. Uh, In many countries, health is becoming private, and that's one of the main sources of advice for mothers and families in terms of nutrition, as well as the pharmaceutical sector in terms of products that are for nutrition, but they obviously have their issues, so I just wanted to get your take on that. what's the question? Well, the question is, how have you seen the engagement with these two sectors impact uh, global nutrition? and where there are you know, opportunities or yeah. risks as we, as we look at the private sector in this context.
2: If you can just pass the mic up to Larry and then we'll pass it over to Julie. Thanks.
1: Uh, well, Larry Schaefer with Schaefer Global Management. The presence of controlled environment agriculture, aquaponics, hydroponics, what do you see the presence versus the potential in the marketplace, urban, rural, out in the world? for addressing some of the issues for nutrition. Um, I'm okay with an
2: app. Okay, great. Julie, go ahead.
0: Yeah. Julie Howard, Senior Advisor here at CSIS. Lawrence, Hi. thank you so much for your career work in, in this area. really appreciate it. Um, Structural regulatory change and get some of the change that you talked about at small, mm-hmm. medium enterprise level uh, to, to drive change in local systems. Thank you.
2: Great. You can go ahead and take the mic. Um, we'll wait and do another round of questions. Go ahead.
1: Okay. Three really difficult questions. Um,
2: we always have a smart audience.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We're too well-informed. Um, controlled environment agriculture. I'm not an expert on this at all, so my apologies, but my guess is um, that this has a really high potential for, high, for high-income consumers uh, who are willing to pay the premium, uh, and there are, there are lots of high-income consumers all over Asia and Africa, actually. So I'm always surprised by the number of online deliveries that I find in Asia, especially, is huge online food delivery. Um, so that tells you there's a, big, there's a big middle class. It's still much smaller than the poor, poorer folks. But you know in China, there are probably 100, 200 million middle class. That's big. So for those kind of consumers, maybe, maybe this controlled environment, um, agriculture is, is really important. I, but I don't know. I'm just guessing. I'm waffling. It's the equivalent of standing on stage with a guitar and singing, um, <laughs> but I, I, you've you've prompted me to think about and find out find out an answer to that. On on pharma, I don't know much about pharma, but I suspect you have in mind sort of the advice that's given by um, breast milk manufacturers to um, the advice that's given to breast milk, by breast milk manufacturers to sorry breast milk substitute manufacturers. To, um, to mothers via health professionals. And of course, this is against the Code of Conduct, uh, uh, a violation of the Code of Conduct, which raises a, a re- because I don't really know the answer to your question, I'm going to sort of link it to a related, a related issue, which is um, what about how do we deal with companies that violate the breast milk substitute code of conduct? So there are five or six big companies that control this breast milk substitute market. Um, the code of conduct has expanded over the years to say companies cannot market to uh, any of this stuff to zero to mothers with babies of zero to six months. That was what it started out as. And now it's gone from zero to 36 months is the la- latest version. And um, this ATNF, this Access to Nutritious Food Index that I mentioned earlier, comes out every two or three years. It, it looks at the performance of those companies against the code, uh, and none of the companies are above 50%. Um, now, it's very, very difficult to get to 100%, and the trends are positive as they do them year by year, but we need to put more pressure on companies to comply with the code, but we also need to support them because actually, it's, it's actually quite difficult for them to do it on a first mover basis. They'll lose, a lot of, they'll lose a lot of business. So they have to do it as a group. And to do it as a group, we have to support them, uh, I think, to do that. And fortunately, there is, a, there is an ongoing process now with the five big breast milk substitute manufacturers. And it's, it's, making, you know, it's making progress. So I'm, I'm optimistic about that. And that's a really good example of if you ignore the breast milk substitute manufacturers, you'll get nowhere. If you engage them, and say, look, we will reward you for positive, positive commitments and positive movement, then it gives them something to, to work towards. On the, on the youth question, uh, Julie, yeah, I mean, my gosh, uh, so many times we, in, in nutrition especially, we, we design programs for people, and we deliver, we, we deliver programs to people, and we never think about working with people to design things, understanding what they need, and working with them as agents of change. And I think with youth, uh, adolescents, we do a lot of work with adolescents, um, but we look at adolescents as change makers uh, and and change agents. So in Bangladesh, we're working with the youth movement. Um, Lots of Bangladeshi kids, even really quite poor Bangladeshi kids, have little five cents of pocket money every day. And they will go out and they will spend it on junk food. And so we're working with a youth movement in Bangladesh to get a million adolescents to sign up to a pocket money pledge, which is essentially a mechanism for aggregating demand, aggregating all those five cents into something really significant. And then they will go on a march, it's planned in October, um, to the government and say, government, we are pledging to spend X percent of our pocket money on healthy foods, what are you gonna do uh, in response? And of course we will have been working with the government to make sure the government has a is not embarrassed and actually has a has a response, and then they're going to go to um, food companies and say, if you um, stock a certain percentage of healthy foods, and we have to define what healthy food is in a Bangladeshi context, we will allow you to have uh, our pocket money pledge certification on your on your store. So it's a really interesting way of, you know, engaging with adolescents and. How do, you, how do you link nutrition to what adolescents care about? Because they don't really care about nutrition, they care about other things. How do you link it to what they care about? And then how do you work with their movements to put pressure on the government and business to do more for healthy food? So we're, we're trying to do more and more of those kinds of programs. So I think youth are, abs- I, think those, I think that slide I put up for the US, I bet, I bet it's pretty similar for most countries.
2: I like that pocket money pledge. I need to do that myself. Um, looking out at the audience, we actually have a lot of young people here today, so we will get to everyone, but speaking of youth, um, any young people, do you have a question? Under 30. Here we go, over on the side. Any over here?
1: Okay, now I'm scared.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Hi, my name's Connor Molshein, I'm from uh, Pantherics. I from was where? wondering... From
1: where, sorry? From where?
3: Uh, Pantherics. It's a small company in Colorado. Okay.
2: Um, I was wondering, I, I didn't know much about the Sun Initiative until you just talked about it, so I just briefly looked it up. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about any partnerships you have in the private sector mm-hmm. um, or research opportunities um, within that. Um, I guess what you're looking for in a partner. Um, can you talk more about your partnerships with the private sector, I guess is my question. Yeah, if you can just hand the mic right behind you, if you still have a question right behind you. Great, thanks.
3: Hi, Thomas Hanso from the Estonian Embassy. Um, so, in recent years, there's been a really rapid rise in veganism, and I'm wondering... Sorry,
1: I can't, I can't hear you. Can you, Can uh, you speak a little a,
3: slower? Yeah. There's been a really rapid rise in veganism recently, over the past 10 years or whatever, and I'm wondering how, what kind of effect this will have on global nutrition. Rapid Quite rise, an open-ended yeah. question. Veganism. In veganism. Veganism. Veganism.
2: V- oh, vegan. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. or
3: plant-based diets. Yeah. Great. Okay.
2: okay. Other questions from any under-30s? If not, we'll go with the... Over fifties <laughs> or over forties? Yes, in the back.
0: Thanks very much. Hi, thanks, Diana Bartone, Foundation for a Smoke-Free World, and uh, I'm interested in the couple of comments that you made that alluded to this sort of us solving problems for for them mentality that's been prevalent in the sort of aid space, and uh, it's great that we're talking about this. And I'm wondering what you think about whether that's enough, or you know, what do we do as we um, you know, to, to ensure that sort of the greater community is not just aware of the fact that we need to do a better job of engaging people, engaging youth, but do you, do you see that we're, we're making progress fast enough, or you know, what do we do when the problem might really require a fundamental change in the status quo, or or maybe not. I'm, I'm trying to be provocative as a youth here, so. Uh,
2: <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah. Interested in your thoughts on that. Great. Go ahead.
1: Let me start with the last question first. Um, one of the, and I'll try and link it to Sun, actually, because Scaling Up Nutrition Movement was, found, was founded and was conceived of by David Nabarro and others in 2008, 2009. And that was during the Millennium Development Goal era. And I think it's really sad that no high-income countries have signed up to Sun. I think that's really sad, and I've written blogs about it, and I've nagged people about it, and I've gone to several high-income country governments and said, you should sign up to this. And I'm I'm hoping that the big summit in Japan next year, the big global nutrition summit, will be an opportunity where some high-income countries will sign up to it. Because I think only then, will that signal that we're all in this together and we all have problems and only then will we we'll be opening up our own governments to this level of scrutiny and support that the government of Malawi, Madagascar, Indonesia are opening themselves up to. I think another, another part of the aid machinery and the development machinery that's not quite working in the SDG era is this idea that there's a, there's a certain department of a government that does development so I, did a, I was involved in an exercise with a bunch of UK NGOs uh, looking at the UK governments, looking at a whole of government approach to development. The, global, um, the Center for Global Development does a really nice, um, I forget what it's called now, but they look at all the different government departments across different countries. And they say, is the government of the UK's environment policy, is that good or bad for development? They will look at the UK's Department for International Development, and they'll say, is that doing a good job? But they will look at our trade policy, our environment policy, our security policy, uh, our human rights record. And until we get to that level of accountability, uh, SDGs are a little bit of a, an aspirational thing. So I don't think we're quite there yet. And how do we get there yet? I, at membership of Sun, I think, in the nutrition context would be a very powerful statement of. We recognise that we have problems too, and we recognise that we in the UK or the US can learn from what's happening in Ghana or Indonesia, because we can. The um, the the veganism, uh, yeah, it it is rising rapidly, in in some communities and in some income groups, and I think, I think it's good. I mean, it's 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 an unequivocally good thing. Um, um, but I, but like, like everything, you know, balance is everything. And so, if it's an individual choice, of course, people should feel free to do that, and I think it's a good thing. But for young kids, uh, it's not a good thing. So the Eat Lancet report came out. The Eat Foundation and the and put together a commission. They had a report in the Lancet that came out six months ago. And you know, adults can thrive very well without animal source products, but young children, it's very difficult for them to get the nutrition they need without animal source products. Very difficult. And within animal source products, there are different types of foods that have different health consequences and different environmental consequences. And I think, so we need nuance. We need nuance in which age groups, which geographies, at which time periods, at what levels of malnutrition. Um, so I hope that's, there's no easy answer to your question, but animal source food foods are part of the solution for some groups at some times in some geographies. And animal source foods in terms of, I can't speak to the animal welfare issue because I'm not well informed enough about the animal welfare issue, but in terms of the environmental consequences, uh, I think there's potential to drastically reduce the environmental footprint of some of those, some of those products. Um, and in terms of partnerships, I've got at least three, I can see, of my colleagues here in the room who have been at, all been at GAIN longer than I have, been there two and a half years. And they have all extensive experience in working with partnerships. When I, when I got to GAIN, I said, how many businesses have we worked with in the last five years? And it's over it's 1,000, Johnny, right? It's over 1,000, right? So we've worked with lots and lots of businesses, mostly SMEs, actually. Um, we're looking for businesses who are interested in, in improving nutrition outcomes, obviously. Uh, but actually, we also work with lots of businesses that are not particularly interested in nutrition outcomes, but they're working in sectors where, that are very important for nutrition. So we work with lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of bean companies, um, peanut butter companies, uh, small companies. They're not, they didn't choose those sectors because they care about nutrition. They just, there's lots of reasons why they're in those sectors but they're producing things that are pretty unequivocally good for mal- for malnutrition reduction so we want to support them to grow their businesses and lower their prices to the consumers while maintaining and expanding their profit so we work with lots of different companies they have to they have to be they have to want to improve nutrition or they have to be located in, in areas where their growth can enable nutrition we we the only companies we don't work with are BMS code violators, we don't work with them. Um, We talk to them. What's BMS? Sorry, Breast Milk Substitute Mm -hmm. BMS, Breast Milk Substitute Code, the kinds of companies we were talking about. We don't work with them, but we will talk with them uh, and tell them that if you did more of this stuff and and less of that stuff, your ratings would go up and it'd be easier for people to work with you. Um, So we're always looking for businesses who, who we think can advance nutrition outcomes. We're all we're very cognizant of the risks, very cognizant. We have a very strong due diligence process. Uh, we monitor our programs religiously. We have 11 evaluations that are live right now of our, of our programs, third-party evaluations. Not, we're not doing them. Someone else is doing them. We raise the funds and give the funds to the, the independent evaluators to do them, mostly universities. Um, one of the things that really drove me crazy before I joined GAIN we're seeing lots of companies on stage saying, our program is, fab- is fabulous, our, p- our PPP was fabulous. And I'd say, where's the, can I see the evidence? That sounds great. And they'd point me to a place on their website, and there'd be <laughs> two pages on the website. So,
2: Is there anything more you want to say about Sun and its uh, partnerships with private sector?
1: Yes. Johnny, Johnny Tench here, my, one of my colleagues in the audience. Johnny, is, raise um, your hand. Johnny's a... One of the mm-hmm. co conveners GAIN and the World Food Programme are the co-conveners of the Sun Business Network, and Johnny's one of the conveners of the Global Network. And the Sun Business Network is um, it, the scaling up nutrition movement has has governments, of course, at the core. Uh, then it has a donor network, a business network, a civil society network, and a UN network. And the, all the other networks were pretty straightforward to form, but the Sun Business Network was very difficult to form because there was. The nutrition and business um, have a healthy disregard for each other. At least they used to 10 years ago. I think it's changing. And Sudden Business Network is brilliant for, for governments because governments can say, these companies in my in my country seem to be interested in nutrition. It's brilliant for the businesses because they can link up with each other. They can understand the government priorities and figure out how they can work with the grain as opposed to against the grain and they can, um, we, can, we can support those companies to develop investable propositions for nutrition but also for their businesses. And then we can link them up uh, to finance and technical assistance. So I think Sun Business Network, it was one of the few networks that was really well commended by the medium term review that was just completed.
2: I have a few personal questions yeah. and then we'll turn back to the audience and get to a couple of people. So the first que- personal question I have is, you're a third World Food Prize laureate who's been at CSIS. We had Emma Swaminathan and then, as Amy mentioned, we had Howdy almost exactly two years ago. How has your life changed since you won the award? Has it changed at all? Did it, what, did that, what did that mean to you? Or what did, that, what did that change in your life, winning that award? And congratulations again. Thank it's, you. it's such an accolade and well-deserved. Thank
1: you. I mean, it was, a big, it was a big deal for nutrition, actually. Yeah. You know, it's um, so when Howdy won it, that you know it was for nutrition, but it was also for agriculture, and that's I mean that's what's that's the genius of Harvest Plus and biofortification is that they've they've linked those two things, aligned them so so brilliantly. Um, but it probably wasn't as much of a stretch for the World Food Prize mm. uh, to give it to Harvest Plus and, and Howdy and all the other biofortified crop leaders as it was to give it to sort of out and out nutrition people, especially David. And David's a doctor.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so, so it was a big win. And I think it reflects the, the prominence that nutrition has. It was always gaining. But we, mustn't, we must capitalize and lock in that commitment mm-hmm. through things like Japan. Um, my kids look at me slightly differently now. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh. Are you cool? kind of know what, <laughs> no, never, not, even, not even close. Cool, <laughs> But slightly less geeky, or maybe more geeky, I don't know. But they, it's, it's definitely had an impact on, on them. They kind of get what I do now, a bit more mm. now. Um, and it's, it's um, it made my life a bit more busy, but not, mm. not much more busy. Yeah. I think it's made me realize that I need to up my game mm. um, and get out of my comfort zone. I think as a researcher, and I'm being quite honest here, as a researcher, it's quite easy just to talk to other researchers. You know, I, mean, I come from a research background. Mm-hmm. But I think it made me realize that my obligation is to really talk to the most senior decision maker I can possibly get to, to make the extra effort to get to the vice president or the, or the president or the prime minister, or to talk to the CEO of a big company. And, mm-hmm. and that's not comfortable for me. I'm not a natural extrovert, um, so it's not easy for me, but it made me feel like I have a, more of an obligation to do that.
2: Yeah. And then my second and last personal question is, again, because we have younger people in the audience, what advice do you give to young researchers? I mean, you've had a really, you know, as Julie said, an illustrative career. Like, you've done a lot. You've made a big difference in the world. And um, what do you say to young people who you see have that same passion and drive and, and, um, and want to, to have the kind of career you've had? What advice do you give to them?
1: Um, well, follow your passion. That's really important because that's the, that's the energy source that keeps you going through the difficult times. Mm-hmm. Um, be really generous with your ideas and your and your relationships, because the people you meet on the way up, you'll meet them on the way down. So <laughs> be open and generous. Um, work really hard. Uh, there's, no, there's no substitute for hard work. Mm. And and learn your craft. You know, really don't think you know all the answers right away. Learn your craft, work hard at it, and it will come. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very impatient, all my colleagues know I'm very impatient, but you have, there are times when you just have to be really patient mm. and learn your craft. Don't, don't get ahead of yourself. That's
2: great and, advice. And the
1: other piece of advice is always master the facts. Master. Don't be lazy about the facts, master the facts. It's so much easier now to do that than it was 30 years ago.
2: Yeah.
1: It takes you three hours to get on top of the headlines from a, from a, in a particular area, so don't be lazy. Know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. Don't, you won't be the smartest person in the room, but be the most informed person in the room.
2: Excellent advice. All right. Last round um, in the audience. Let's go to Dan first. Dan, if you can stand up. Um, Emily, over here to your left. There you go.
3: Thanks.
1: Hi. My name is Dan Silverstein. Hey, Dan. Dr. Haddad. Oh, nice hi. to see you. Yesterday, we learned that a businessman had been named the laureate. Uh, are you familiar enough with East West Seed to and Simon Groot to <coughs> offer us insights into how their business model aligns with Gaines' um, viewpoint on how businesses should be conducted? Uh, I, or should I answer that? Uh, let's do two
2: okay. more questions because then we'll have other questions. Okay. Let's go um, right over here. Thanks.
0: Hi, my name is Skylar Coleman. I'm from the International Fund for Agricultural Development. So right now, we're kind of focusing on rural youth. And you talked about urbanization and how sometimes these people that move to the cities can be the most destitute populations.
2: And we're trying to focus on getting younger people away from those situations and maybe back into agriculture or they more rural environments where they can profit. And I'm wondering how
0: exactly the US and these businesses can target these populations to make sure they find success maybe outside of urban environments.
2: Great, and one last question right behind Dan, the young gentleman. Yep, thank you. This will be the last question. So make it really good. Are you ready? I'll try. Okay.
3: Hi, my name is Alex Sullivan. I'm no with pressure. the Annenberg <laughs> Foundation Trust. Um, hmm. My question is about storytelling. Um, And I ask it because I I think, especially within these walls, I think the idea of food security and the like is is really familiar to us. Um, But the people I talk to in my life, uh, they just really have no idea what it is. And so I think, um, have you ever really thought about what what it takes to really tell a good story and to translate some of these more abstract, intangible concepts uh, to people who might not otherwise think about it in the same way?
2: That was a beautiful question. Yeah, well done, you. <laughs> Great question. I ask that to myself all the time, too. It's a really hard, profound question that's not easy to answer. All right, David, you can answer those and then any other concluding remarks you have. I'm not David, have. it's OK. Did I just call you David? Yeah, See, David, I'm channeling yeah, him. That's good. why. Sorry, Lawrence, that's go right. <laughs> ahead. Um,
1: wow, well, uh, again, I, you know, Dan, I'm really embarrassed to say I don't know much about East-West uh, seed. I, I will find out because of, I will. You know, B and I were together, and I'm going to make sure I'm well informed before I meet uh, Simon, uh, but I don't know. So uh, sorry, Maybe, do you know. Do you know much about: No, I don't, uh, but I will find out. Um, it, I think getting younger people interested in agriculture in rural areas is difficult. Um, but I think I think there are ways to make it. Um, I think there are ways to make it seem like a really interesting thing and a and a and a, and a kind of a sexy thing. I, I hate to use that word, but I can't think of a better word. You have to make it attractive and, and uh, aspirational. And um, you know, there's some there's some people I've seen who who are who are sort of redefining what we mean by a startup. And if you can if you can call um, a farmer working on a particular type of crop uh, in a rural area, if you can begin to rethink about them as startup entrepreneurs. I think that gets young people more interested and excited. Um, The problem with that is that most of those startups in rural areas in Africa and Asia and Latin America, they're serving markets overseas. Um, And so there'll be income generation benefits in the rural areas, which is good, uh, but most of the foods Will be produced for overseas markets. So, I, you know, I don't quite know how we do it. We do need to make it more attractive because we do need more people, more entrepreneurial spirit, more more investment. Um, but, but a fact of development is that the rural sector will shrink over time uh, as development happens. We just need to make sure it, it, it's a managed reduction, uh, and it. Um, and it's a, as a productive sector as it can possibly be, that the best people don't leave it, and the, the least able uh, are in it with the least support and the least resources. So I think it's really difficult. I was in the Institute of Development Studies. We had a whole program on how do you do this. And it's, it's, it's about rebranding. It's about reorientating public investment. It's about thinking about how do you link with private investment as um, a whole, it's not easy, so sorry, it's my, my waffly answer to you. Um, and storytelling is really, really, really important. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Roger Thoreau, he's a really great storyteller. Those of you who know them, uh, um, The Moth, you know The Moth, uh, the storytelling group? Uh, they, they, it's a group of people who get together and tell stories um, I'm not a brilliant storyteller. I'm a, I'm a kind of a data geeky guy, but I've learned to become a better storyteller. Still not very good. I had a, an example of how I'm not not very good at it. Is my the day before I was going to give my World Food uh, Prize speech, and you, know, you give a three four minute speech. I was telling my one of my dearest friends uh, who'd come to visit about my speech, and he, I walked him through, and he said. Lawrence, it just sounds like a policy brief. It sounds like a 10-point like plan for world domination, you know. Um, uh, and so I had to completely rewrite it. And I, I made it much more personal. And I tried to tell a story about you know, who I am, and where did I come from, and why am I here. Uh, and I think it, it, I found it much more interesting and much more moving. And I think the audience found it more, more interesting as well. Um, it's hard to tell stories well. It's hard to make these issues real and understandable. One of the best people I've seen do it is this uh, celebrity chef called Jamie Oliver, you may have heard of in the UK, and he's actually really brilliant at it, and I'm trying to learn from him. He, you know, I, I say things like, people have got to eat more food, they've got to eat more of the right food, and they've got to eat less of the wrong food. And my kids can understand that. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to do that more. I think gain, we're trying to do that more again. Businesses are brilliant at telling stories. Business, business women and men are brilliant at telling stories because they have to, to get investment. Um, and they have to tell stories to regular people, not to development geeks. Like We have to tell stories to development geeks to get funding to influence them. So we don't have to talk to regular people, normal people, lay people. Um, but I think if you really want to connect and you really want to have impact at scale, you have to learn how to do that. Hmm. So, very good question. Thank you.
2: Excellent, Lawrence. Thank you so much for being here. My um, it's a it's a joy to have you. It's uh, wonderful to learn and listen from you. Um, we're really grateful for your time. Can we give a round of applause for thank Lawrence? Thank you. Thank you. First, I forgot David's name. In the-